0: You are listening to Kilometer
1: Zero by the Cycling Podcast.
2: si anche quello, la la la
1: proprio yeah. oh, Brian what you got there well I had a everything is local usually and that's what we like about the Giro as well I had a, a tartar of um, local I think it was um, vitello so veal from the from the area with with truffles there was a sign outside the door that this is one of the places to go and eat the local truffles. It was um, but it had like a, an, a combination of various citrus fruits to like freshen it up. That was quite pleasant, but still heavy, as you know, as, as relatively raw meat will always be.
3: And Brian, we just had a well, we had a lovely sort of summary resoconto, as they say in Italy, of. Um the kind of gastronomic, the land, well, the, the sort of lie of the land, didn't? Oh, waiter, we're in a quite a traditional restaurant, I aren't mean, White tablecloth tonight. We're really? at the bottom, very elegant place. Yeah, very elegant. We're at the bottom of the climb to blockhouse, effectively. We just I heard blockhouse after eating here. <laughs> no, we but Brian, it's one of the joys of being on the Giro, isn't it? It's something that we we glory in this on the podcast, and I think you know as the years go by, Italy's place in the world. Is well, it's more and more synonymous with its gastronomy, and it's food traditions. It's, it's food traditions, yeah, and um, partly because of things like our podcast, we continue to exalt
1: this, we continue to celebrate this, and um, but I also I think when you say gastronomy, you also sometimes imply that it's like haute cuisine, you know, really fine dining, which I don't think Italy. Re- re- I don't think there's a reflection of fine dining in, in Italian food because it's more your everyday food that they just perfect, elevate to new levels. I I, I always try and avoid Michelin restaurants in Italy because I would do you? I really do. <laughs> I thought you were trying to book one, Elliot. No, no, no. It's more so I, I would I like local dishes made with what's in season. I don't mind it being tried like, if they sometimes want to perfect it, but I don't want to. I don't want. I don't want foam. On my plate in
3: Italy. Well, Brian, this is the story that's told. This is the story that we tell of the ancient traditions passed down from generation to generation, from the countryside mainly. It's the image you see on the label of your pasta sauce. Is it the truth, however? Apparently not. Apparently not. Apparently we might not. Find that and the, it might not be the truth. And the other thing that we often, well, we talk about and we laugh about a lot is the dogmatic nature of italian food culture and the intransigence that's connected to italian food culture we talk about these rules these canons that they have you can't have a cappuccino after 11 o'clock
1: you can't have parmesan with an arrabbiata there are you can't put cheese on fish dishes you can't have garlic in a matriciana so there's all these rules that you kind of feel like it's it's the totem it what defines the identity of italian food And I understand we're doing some myth-busting in this Kilometre Zero.
3: Well, I think we are, Brian. There is someone, and he's not even a foreigner, he's an Italian, who has set about, he's made it his, I wouldn't say his life's work, but certainly his mission over the last few years to to bust some of these myths. And he's been causing, causing quite a stir in Italy, particularly since an interview he gave with the Financial Times a few weeks ago. His name is Alberto Grandi. He is a professor at the University of Parma and he has become public enemy number one in Italy. He's been a- attacked by very prominent politicians like Matteo Salvini, various other people. Salvini said that he was a so-called expert. So, as I said, he's a sort of—he's become a bit of a um, well, a marked man, shall we say? And you know what, Brian? Well, I spoke to him a few weeks ago about all of this ferore. We're going to hear a lot from Alberto Grandi.
2: I've received a
3: lot of messages and a lot of emails even offensive and kind of threatening ones because it's touched a very raw nerve for the Italians it's all been very real A large share of the animosity towards me is due to the fact that the Italian newspapers badly translated the first interview, the one I gave to the Financial Times. And so there was a lot of manipulation. The National Farmers Confederation was very manipulative in the way they used that interview. And the same with the Consortium of Parmesan Cheese Producers. They continue to do that and so fuel the hatred. I don't know if that's the right word. I'm talking about this resentment or at least ill feeling towards me. Yesterday, a very long article came out in the Mattino di Napoli that attributes things to me that I've never said. Like that I say Italian food is no good, that Parmesan was born in America, that pizza was born in America, which of course I never said. A very interesting article came out in the Gazzetta di Parma attacking me and somehow lumping together my opinions on Italian cuisine with the issues of synthetic meat and the nutritional value of insects. That's to say, it basically throws everything into the same pot and argues that ultimately the purpose of all of this is to destroy Italian cuisine an Italian gastronomic culture, basically that I'm some kind of undercover gastronomic agent, a spy working on behalf of the British. The fact is that in Italy, you eat very good things, but this has practically nothing to do with the history of Italy or rather, it's much more complicated than the way it's often told. The ridiculous story that's always told is that in Italy, Italians have always eaten well and we're the best. But then, as I always say, why did 25 million leave if they ate spaghetti, macaroni, pizza, meat stews and tortellini all day? It's also something the British historian Eric Hobsbawm was talking about in the 1970s. He edited a book about it, The Invention of Tradition. All that I wrote in my book in 2018 was fruit of what other people had written. The problem is that these food historians, and there are some very good ones among them who have done extraordinary work, never had the courage or the opportunity to put their work into the mainstream public domain. Moreover, that book is somehow also the result of my personal frustration because I myself, who knew these things, would find myself trotting out the same myths in public. So somehow, I couldn't summon the courage either. There was this separation between the rigorous research I was doing and the information I then passed on to the public. In the end, as I always say, all I revealed is that Father Christmas doesn't exist because I never said there'll be no gifts under the tree. I said there will be presents for everyone to unwrap.
2: It's just that Father Christmas didn't bring them.
1: l'origine del nome è praticamente è antichissimo risale all'epoca romana sì. oltre duemila anni fa mm. perché i romani quando partivano per le conquiste per per andare in giro si portavano dei, dei well, Bob Brian
3: no? who was that we just heard not Alberto Grandi we'll get back to him in a minute but the voice we heard after him
1: that was the, it's the owner and chief uh, philosopher of a very old restaurant here in Teramo and it's called Macello Schilacci. And the restaurant is called La Cantina di Porta Romana. And this relates very much, doesn't it, to
3: the subject really of this podcast, because he was talking food traditions, and one food tradition in particular, and typically of Italy, this is a food tradition that has found itself at the centre of a controversy over the last few years. Tell us a bit more, Brian.
1: So the controversy is surrounding a very specific dish for for Teramo called uh, Il Virtù, Le Vertu. Le, sorry, Le Vertu. And it's, you can't call it a minestrone, but just to exemplify what it looks like, it's, it's a type of minestrone, but it's very specific for at a certain time of year here. Some only eat it on May 1st. Here at this restaurant, and I, I'm pretty sure he's sort of the... the bizarre. Yeah, he's the main purveyor of this tradition. He, as you can see here on the sign, you can eat it from the 25th of April and through the month of May. And uh, just as we were walking by trying to see what it looked like, he came out and invited us in to have a taste. And he himself has been at the centre of some of these controversies because he, well, he's sort
3: of started and is the president or the chairman of this association for the protection of the, the Vertu, which I thought because the Italian word for virtue is Vertu, so I thought yep. that was where the name came from. He explains to us it's not it comes from, it's probably comes from the Greek to stir because originally, well, it was the basically leftover ingredients from winter which were stirred to lower the temperature, stop them fermenting, they were then They're then combined with the new ingredients of the sort of spring crop. And that's basically how you get the dish. But, Brian, it's it's an ancient tradition or so. Marcello says he talked about it being over 2,000 years old. And we hear this kind of story a lot in Italy, don't we? And this brings us back to Alberto Grandi because, well, Brian, we heard him talk about how he has been at the centre of all this kerfuffle, all this fuss. And he's been attacked and threatened but specifically, what is it that people are most upset about? What's he said that people really have taken umbrage to?
1: Well, to give you an example and it's, it's Sorry, to, have taken exception to. Well, to give you the most sort of poignant example is the origin of the parmesan cheese, the parmigiano-reggiano, uh, which is obviously based in a certain part of Italy and, and they, they claim and they legally can claim that they're the only ones who can make it. But he's traced the origins of that type of cheese back to Italian immigrants of Wisconsin. And they, they still make that cheese. It's a lot smaller. You know, the big wheels of Parmesan cheese are around 40 kilos. But this uh, Wisconsin version of it is one kilo, and it's, it's sort of covered in dark uh, uh, rind. Uh, and there's an aspect to this that's quite interesting, and also why this is a very serious debate. It's not just sort of, you know people having an argument on the on the piazza there's a thing in italy called the the dop and it's a bit like you have a doc in in wine and it's it's um diminuzione uh origine yeah so it's a protection of the 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 origin and what creates uh, the area where it can be made so what uh, Alberto Grandi really does is he violates the copyrights of the parmesan cheese by saying you know it's actually from somewhere else and it it for some people, it opens the door for everyone to start producing it or maybe them actually claiming that they are the only ones who can produce the real parmesan, you know, which is it's a crazy thought, you know, it's almost ironic, but it's not to the people who are trying to protect these, uh, these local local specialities. And in fact, well, he has
3: directly, squarely thumbed his nose at these denominazione di the origine um, protetta and controllata um, the, the title of his book that he wrote in 2018 was Denominazione di origine inventata which basically well it's it, it condenses it encapsulates that one of the main theses of Alberto Grandi is that the history of Italian food as we know it today has been invented and it's been invented it's been rewritten in the last 50 years and he's taken aim you mentioned their Parmesan he's taken aim at for example the origin of um, carbonara sauce He's taken aim at pizza or... Cappuccino.
1: Cappuc- Cappuccino. He's got some thoughts on that. He's got some thoughts on pretty much everything. And um, all I of mean, the yeah, canons. something that we've, uh, over the years, have spent a lot of time uh, at least tasting and, and talking about uh, during the Giro. But he's very upset that, well, he's been writing about these and researching
3: these things for a long time. And the book came out in 2018. However, as a result of this recent interview with the Financial Times the controversies, whatever controversies and whatever sort of consternation there was about what he has said has gone
1: to a different level. But one of the... one of buy his... t-shirts critiquing him and there was a sort of type of GoFundMe campaign where people could donate money to, you know, cause... I'm sure quiet, but, w- but serious riots about how he has rewritten the history of their local specialities. But he's not the first
3: person to write about this subject and this is one of the things that's aggrieved him that a lot of this information has been out there for a long time. For example, we're going to hear from him now in fact, John Dickey, another one of my former Italian professors, he wrote a book a few years ago called Delizia and he's an an Englishman and well we asked him what he's made of the Alberto Grandi controversy, polemica. Exactly,
0: polemica. Hi Daniel, how are Hi, you doing? John,
3: not too bad, thanks. Thank you for doing this. Can you hear me all right? Yeah, yeah. I am. Um, I'm sitting outside an autogrill uh, on the way from Rome to Pescara, which seems very appropriate
0: <laughs> okay. to, to talk
3: about this.
0: Um, but the, yeah, I'm, the, there's a new edition of my history of Italian food coming out and uh, actually had a really nice chat with Alberto who said that he was inspired to write his uh, book by reading my book. So that's all very nice. Um, so I've returned the favour by kind of um, talking briefly about his case in the new uh, chapter that I've done for the updated edition of Delizia, which will be out for sort of November. I mean, we too are attached to the sort of rural myth of Italian food, you know, the the sort of Dolmio family out in the vineyard kind of vision uh, of Italian food, you know, those adverts mm. for the awful pasta sauces. That's what we want Italian food to be, I suppose people find it quite endearing that Italians are so attached to this. In some ways, there's as much resistance in Britain among people who love Italian food in Britain as there is in Italy or nearly as much to the idea that this is largely a myth. Mm. Um, This idea of the rural origins of Italian food is complete uh, claptrap as that, as Alberto Grandi says, is largely made up in the 1970s by which time of course Italians had left the peasant life behind by by and large. Italian food has, and I love Italian food has kind of uh, you know successfully branded itself as being about artisanal authenticity and peasant roots and all of that kind of thing and it's nice to see a kind of challenge to that getting in it get in a way getting more of an airing in Britain, you know, it's, it, it, Alberto Grandi has been saying these things for a while, and he only caused a real, real political storm when it got echoed in the Financial Times and was relayed back home. You know, mm-hmm. Alberto has his finger on the pulse more than I pulse more than I do, but I, his sense is that young people aren't interested in this stuff. It all feels a bit old ish, This endless purism about recipes and, and, um, it's also, um, y- y- you know, a, a kind of knee jerk reaction from the sort of gastro nationalists in the coven- co- current, um, government against, um, you know, or artificially created meat, for example, mm. the, going for the, the yuck fat of, you know, science interfering mm. with our diets, mm. you know, we're going to need all the help we, we we can get to get out of this environmental crisis. And we don't know yet, you know, quite what these, you know, these new sciences can achieve in terms of food. And Italy's never turned its back on science in the past, or at least it it, it hasn't. If if science can disguise itself, um, you know the very good example of that is the Mediterranean diet. Mm. You know that was invented by American epidemiologist <laughs> yes. Ancel Keys, but of course because it got wrapped up in all this, you know, genuine Italian stuff. Italians loved it, but it's mm. as modern as hell. You know that too is a product, you know, of the nineteen seventies. The, the the um. Ansel Keys's the the recipe book he wrote with his wife, I think, came out in 1974, and that really was what started the craze off for the Mediterranean diet and stopped people in kind of the north cooking with strutto and and made them, you know, Mm. suck in olive oil from all over the world uh, to feed Italians' hunger for it.
1: So, Daniel, you spoke at great length with uh, Alberto Grandi. What are the main takeaways from, from that conversation? I mean, the thing that really struck me, Brian, was well, I expected us
3: to sort of go through a litany of Italian culinary sacred cows and slaughter them. And we sort of did. And anyone who's interested in the real origins of, for example, the name of a margherita pizza, or pizza itself, or carbonara, or tiramisu, we've talked about that a lot on the podcast, well, they can listen to the complete Alberto Grandi interview with subtitles. We're going to put it on YouTube, I think, in the next few days. But what I didn't expect to get, but what I was treated to by Alberto, was this potted history of, of Italian culinary tradition and we talked in particular about three key moments. One obviously being the, as you would expect maybe, the unification of Italy in the 1860s. Something we've talked about a lot on the podcast. And the situation at that time, as Alberto described to me, was uh, a pretty miserable one for most Italians, rural Italians. And um, and it got worse in the 1870s. There was an agrarian crisis. But there wasn't too much distinction between the north and the south. But they were eating four or five Foodstuffs, ingredients in the north, they ate polenta. That was one difference in the south, they didn't have polenta, but otherwise, it was pretty miserable. And as he rightly says, why did so many Italians leave in that period? And certainly, over the next 40 50 years, estimates range from 15 to 20 million Italians left. If things were so good, which is what we're led to believe sometimes by this mythology around rural Italian cooking and gastronomy. And then the next key thing we talked about was this migration, this great Italian migration, particularly of southerners to america in the first 15 years of the 20th century and this had a a really interesting effect because as i said a lot of them were southerners and this is the sort of hollywood really embraced and kind of crystallized this image of the southern italian in the flat cap and in most cases in most portrayals he was sort of a mafioso Um, it was a real sort of crass stereotypical image but what happens is these southern italians they go away and they find new ingredients and and they combine those ingredients also with a sort of nostalgia for home. So there's some elements of the, the gastronomy and the culinary traditions they've come from. But they start to create something new. And there's also a third element, which was a sort of Bible of uh, Italian cooking. The only real Bible of Italian cooking at that time, which was written by a guy called Pellegrino Artusi. And they have access to this book, a lot of these Italians. And it's a bit of a mishmash, but they take elements of that, this sort of nostalgia for home, new ingredients. It's a fusion kitchen. It's a fusion of, of sorts. And they kind of put it back together. And then they go back to Italy, eventually, a lot of them. And this has a profound effect on what we now know as Italian cooking. And things like pizza. Pizza existed in Napoli prior to this mass migration. However, it was quite different from the pizza that we know today. It was a sort of a sweet focaccia, Alberto said to me. And there were certainly no tomatoes on it. But the, the migrants or the emigres, they go back home. And over the course of a couple of decades, this new dish... Um, starts to become popular and it's basically the pizza we know today and in fact this phenomenon is well documented it's dominated it's documented by sociologists and they call it the pizza effect and it's also been seen with things like samosas in india as well so that was really fascinating and then the next key moment brian was sort of 60s 70s and In some of the interviews he's given, Alberto Grandi has talked about this as the sort of the birthplace, the genesis of the mythology that we now have come to associate with Italian cooking. And this is something that John Dickey has also written about.
0: I mean, what he says is basically you have a moment in the 1970s where the sort of the dreams of that were generated during the economic boom begin to be questioned you have a series of environmental and food scandals like that wine poisoning scandal or, you know, those sorts of things. You have the economic downturn, you have the years of lead, it's all suddenly not looking so good and you have youth cultures emerging and so on. And this this kind of troubled moment is when Italians start to look back, look to the countryside not as something. Thank God, I've left that behind. But as something that was more genuine, simpler. You know, this sort of whole nostalgia fable. I mm-hmm. think that's what he's doing, and there's an there's an awful lot of evidence to support that. I mean, kind of, you know, in some way, slow food comes out of that out of that vibe. Things like, you know, you start to get the the sagre of all sorts of weird local food and things like you know just one example in 1974 uh, I think it was the learned fraternity of the tortellino in Bologna deposited a legal deed in the chamber of commerce of Bologna uh, setting the recipe for tortellini in stone I suppose where I would be um Uh, slightly differ from Alberto Grandi is that he, um, I I see longer term continuities, along with other historians like Giovanni Rebora and, and others, longer term continuities in the sort of urban lifestyle aspect, the city aspect of Italian eating. That's where you really find it. You know that's where Italian food, as we know it, really comes from. The weird thing is that just as Italian food became really successful and internationally respected and all that kind of stuff, um it started to kind of misrecognize its own history as a sort of history of peasant food. Mm. Um, so that's the that's the strange um, mm, that's a thing.
3: I don't think this lack of flexibility is typical of Italians generally I think we're extremely flexible and accommodating with respect to everything except food We don't give a damn about anything We couldn't give two hoots But if you put pancetta instead of guanciale in the carbonara you might get crucified But I have a theory about that too Why we're so picky about food well it's because our cuisine 50 years ago was not considered, and so in order for us to gain a lead, we had to become almost caricatures. I always remind my students of how in 2021, when Italy didn't deliver the 250,000 doses of AstraZeneca to Australia, a politician theatrically snapped his linguine in half and put some kind of condiment and cream and then said, we will call it carbonara until you give us the vaccine. In my opinion, this fastidiousness is now as much a part of the brand of Italian cuisine as the ingredients or dishes. As I say it was a
2: necessary means to the end of creating an identity e questo fa parte un po' della costruzione della tradizione e della e dell'immagine che l'Italia ha costruito allo
1: mia vicino casa mia vicino
2: Maximilian Chandry, Sport Director of Movie Star Team. So I mean, I still remember a friend of mine, what used to live in uh, Huntington Beach, called Ron, and uh, and uh, I went there when I went to America in 1985. You know, obviously, as you said, my dad's a chef and he has restaurants in LA, and I used to go and see this guy, and he was like, "Let's do some macaroni." <laughs> like, okay, and then the next thing he does, grabs his macaroni from a box and he puts them in a the microwave oven. For sure, you get offended. But uh, whatever you do, I think you always, you're always, you always going to pull out pasta. You're always going to pull out olive oil. You're always going to pull out a bit of spicy, you know, a bit of uh, peperoncino. Anything you can... Then whatever you do with it, but the base is all Italian, you know. Whatever you do with anything of your food, you can mix pasta and cereal. I've, I've seen that doing. Oh, cereal, cereal. I, I saw... Uh, all sorts of stuff with bike riders in the in in the days, you know. But uh, I still think the Italian food is 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 the top quality of 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 the base ingredients. Then, however, you mix them ingredients, it's up to you. Wherever you live in the world, you know. Cav can tell you a nice little story, you know, how I taught him to do uh, spaghetti al pomodoro fresco, <laughs> and he always says that, you know, it's a little thing. It's like, hey, Max, you taught me how to do pomodoro, you know, like, like little cherry tomatoes and. And, and you know drop the pasta when it's still almost not finished cooking and throw them in in the pomodori. you know so stuff like that. I've never seen G really do much, but one guy who really shocked me was Stannard. Stannard would put like Heinz beans and, and cereal together and just eat a big old bowl of stuff. And I was like when I was with the academy I was like, guys, yeah because these guys used to cook for themselves, you know so I mean a bunch of English guys coming to Italy, Tuscany, you know, where bloody hell, it's like there you go, that's the healthiest place you can have, and I was teaching these guys how to to, you know, to make themselves not one massive plate of food but have the portion of pasta or rice or risotto, whatever it was and then do a second course, and just enjoy that time they'll spend eating you know, so it was pretty funny in them days you know, you see these guys doing crazy but the craziest one was to he Used to he used to mix anything <laughs> It's actually true, like, uh, Max actually told me to cook pasta properly, like, anyone could cook pasta, but to cook pasta like an Italian, you know, it's, it's really, really true, it's not an uh, Italian bigging themselves up for, like, uh, showed us how to properly boil the water, bring it up, bring it down, bring it up, bring it down, and how to cook the tomatoes. I used that a lot when I was younger as well, you know, uh, probably made it for my wife when I first met her.
3: The, the whole Italian intransigence about food, you can't have this with that,
2: you can't... It's so have good, it. isn't it? You like it? I, I, I find it funny. I just really quite like it, you know. It, but it, yeah, then when you get like a British come over and order a cappuccino with their dinner and you're like, even I start to get a bit... Uh, it's, uh, it is funny though. That, yeah, you it was you that told me about it. That Twitter thing that Italians mad at food. Oh, funny.
1: Our last Christmas I had a cheeseburger pizza from Domino's. and It was absolutely banging. It's lovely. It wasn't like a cheeseburger. I knew, you, I knew you'd come out with something like this. On a pizza, but it was like ground mince, nice bit of sauce, few gherkins, bloody lovely. So um, it's all a bit cra- It's all
0: a bit, I say, crazy. But you know, the traditions are nice. But I like to break them. Though. Oh, I mean, there's lots of fun to be had with them. I think. I mean, I, I, I think. I, I, there is a kind of wisdom of crowds aspect to this. And if, you know, if Italians, lots of Italians say, look, it's really not a good idea to have a cappuccino after about 11 o'clock <laughs> in the morning. I think there's probably a good reason for that. Um, oh, you know, so I'm, I, I'm instinctively want to try and blend in and, and, and yeah. follow the rules. But, but it can be crazy. I mean, one one thing I recently looked at was, you know, the... Uh, pasta la gricia you know, the Roman dish with yeah. guanciale and strutto and all this kind of, and pecorino and so on. And your know, massive fuss created when master chef, the two two master Chef uh, chefs, Cracco and Bastianich, suggested putting onion in it. Um, and, you know, champions of the orthodoxy and so on and so forth and this was how the peasant it wasn't the it's the shepherds in that case is always used to do it absolutely no evidence to support that and in fact the oldest recipe for anything like that that we have you know italians have been dressing pasta with various forms of pork and fat and cheese for as long as they've been eating pasta and it's just a very modern obsession to want to make that into a canonical recipe, you know, mm. that thou shalt not transgress. Mm. Um, and in fact, the oldest recipe where, have for anything like that is from Ada Boni, who's the great, you know, sort of grand dame of Italian cuisine under fascism. And she includes both, um, both onion and um, abundant pepper. Mm. Um, uh, which is another supposedly another massive no-no for the purists. And the other danger of it, of course, is that people are making political capital out of it at yes. the moment. Mm. You know, that this gastro-nationalism is a serious national force. What's his name? Lolo Brigida, the, mm. you know, who's v- clearly very close to Meloni, gets the agriculture gig to strike kind of, conservative patriotic poses about Italian food
3: well Brian we've come to the end of this well it's it's kind of been a it's almost a, a menu degustazione a multi course meal of polemica polemica for every course um, we set out in this episode to talk about the Alberto Grandi furore he is the, the Italian food heretic of the moment Some very interesting takeaways. And there are some parallels with cycling as well. Funnily enough, I spoke to Alberto Grandi also about... He he bemoans the fact that no one talks about Italy's great industrial tradition in the 60s and 70s. And there were a lot of brands um, who were a fruit of the great tradition of innovation that Italy had. For example, manufacturers of coffee machines who have sponsored cycling teams. Samontana who made um, ice cream. That that has sort of been subsumed... That image that is- Italy used to have, a sort of captain of in- innovation, and it's been replaced and squashed and squandered by this sort of bucolic image of, as John Dickey said, well, the kind of image you see on the labels
1: of pasta sauces. Well, it's also a, it's a sexier story than you know industrial innovations in the north. Shocking revelations as well. I my daughter's middle name is Margherita. That's not. Not just because of my love for that pizza, but also it gives me sort of connotations to something that I thought was like uh, yeah like an axis of Italian identity, which you know I need to think about differently i don't probably i won't like the food any less, but the one element, and you and I talk about that I think every year uh, about the giro that, that I think connects to this discussion is the element of nostalgia. Cycling is probably the most nostalgic sport in the world maybe baseball sometimes can be as nostalgic but nowhere more so than in italy exactly and nowhere more so in the current situation of italian cycling you know there is no professional italian cycling team at the highest level of the world tour level there is no italian favorite for even a podium spot at the giro so it, it's as if the the race has taken over the role of creating the italian pride and they sort of have to um be basking in the in the sunshine of the international riders like Remco Evenepoel and Roglic, and, and not so much their own their own favourite riders.
3: And they've leaned more and more into the, the the sort of prestige of Italy as a tourist destination, and, and Italy as the cradle of these fantastic foods, for
1: example, foods and wines. And they really see, try to exalt that material. You know, when you open the race book. Uh, after you see the description you know the, the metrics of the stage immediately you'll find the local culinary high you know points you'll see what to drink and, and things like that so it's you remember when they started that slogan I think it was something along the lines of the hardest race in the most beautiful place so that the beauty is sort of the, the main character the main Italian edition and, and that bit I agree with wholeheartedly it is It is the most beautiful bike race. And and I think they, if you compare it to France, Italians take pride in that. Uh, French people take it forgiven that, that of course, France is the most beautiful country. I think that expresses itself quite quite clearly here at the Giro.
3: Well, Brian, one reason I wanted to do this Kilometre Zero and tackle this issue was that we ourselves, over the past... However many years that we've been doing the Judy Tai, we've been guilty sometimes of basking in these cliched images of Italy and these cliched notions of Italy and almost selling them to our listenership. And this podcast, this Kilometer Zero, is almost a manifesto for us as well to drag italy perhaps or help drag italy by the wing mirror let's imagine you know they're off the back of the peloton you know towards <laughs> to stay within the time limit <laughs> t- towards something fresher more innovative or certainly for us to look more in that direction and we're going to talk more about this in relation to cycling specifically how does italy rebuild as a cycling nation as well we're going to talk about that in a later episode of kilometer zero but brian we've got time i think i think we should end this kilometer zero by slaughtering one last sacred cow and it's one beloved to us on the Cycling Podcast, and it regards cappuccino. Cappuccino, we know it can't be drunk after 11 o'clock, but Brian, did you know that according to Alberto Grandi, well, he's got a theory anyway, it may have been invented by the Germans. Let's hear Alberto one
2: last time, shall we? I have a theory about it.
3: In my opinion, from a technological point of view, you need the machine invented by Gadget. It's adapted from a patent for something else, but this one is from 1939. You need the frothing nozzle in the milk, this machine. But then war breaks out and so it doesn't get distributed. But it starts to catch on in the second half of the 50s in Italy. And only then do Italians discover cappuccino. Italians have been drinking lattes forever. Not everyone, because milk is a luxury product. But cafe latte was drunk at home and in bars. Cappuccino is a different thing precisely because you need this gadget. Basically, this machine spreads initially on the Adriatic Riviera in the second half of the 50s, then throughout the 60s, then later throughout the rest of Italy. And finally, Italy all gets to know about cappuccino. But the first phase of this machine being widely sold is there. Obviously, Romagnoli live on the Romagnolo Riviera, on that coastline, but German tourists have always flocked there. Not so much now, but until the 90s and 2000s, German tourism was clearly prevalent in that area. It makes me say that the demand by Germans for this cappuccino product may have been decisive in its success.
2: Mi fa dire che la domanda espressa dai tedeschi di questo prodotto del cappuccino potrebbe essere stata decisiva nel successo The Cycling Podcast was created in 2013 by Richard Moore, Daniel Freib and Lionel Burney.
3: This episode was produced by Tom
2: Wally.